So for most of my life, I was not a dog person. Uh, to me, a dog just rep represented like a bundle of responsibility and like who needs a bundle of responsibility. That was until um, a little more than a year ago, the Ziegler family got a puppy. It's an Australian Labradoodle named Emmy, uh, cinnamon colored with like this white patch in front, about up to knee, my knee high, and it's, it's probably the goofiest creature I can possibly imagine. Um, so sometimes I'll walk home from the office and she will just be kind of looking out the, the back door, and the moment she sees me, she just like takes off like a dart, and by the time I come to the front door and I open the door and I step in, her tail is wagging in a way that I'm sure she will sprain it someday. I mean, she is really excited, and she's making this expression that kind of looks like snapping, but I think is her attempt to do like a human smile. I mean, she is just filled with exuberance. And then eventually when I take off my shoes and I sit down, she immediately comes with a ball because it's time to play. And, and I get it now. That there is, there is something about a connection that happens with a creature like this where you are caring for it and it just loves you for no reason that you fully understand, where you feel... I don't know, right with the world. There's a, there's a harmony that is there. That is, that is amazing. Of course, that's not the only thing that's true about creatures in this world, right? I remember a friend of mine was talking about one time when he was putting his little kid to bed and his boy, maybe trying to keep his dad from shutting off the lights or maybe because his, this boy was really anxious, said, Dad, why are there bitey things? And we know what he means, right? Like, not every creature out there wants to play ball. Tigers maybe see you as prey. Mosquitoes just want to bite you. Viruses don't want anything, but they cause worldwide epidemics. The world is filled with bitey things, and, and that creates kind of a complexity about this life, right? I mean, we see hints of, of beauty and goodness, and we see hints of chaos that are even menacing. And whether we realize it or not, the question that each of us are, are, are trying to answer is this. Which of these is more true about the world? At the heart of the reality that we live in, is the heart ultimately about goodness and life? Or is the very heart of reality, when we really understand it, death? I remember, uh, it was a little more than 20 years ago, one of the best days of my life. I still remember it keenly. After 23 hours of labor, we, Jennifer gave birth to our first boy, Timothy, and there was this moment after he was born where we had to kind of move off to another room. It was just me and the nurse and Tim to, to weigh him. He was 10 pounds, 14 ounces. So he's super chubbo baby. And the nurse at one point left, and it was just me and Tim, and I was just holding him. And I'm like, I'm even allowed to be alone with him. This felt really weird to me in the moment. But I was just, I, like, I remember just singing. And I'm, I'm not a huge singer. I won't do the Nick Owens and sing it right now. But I don't know if you know the, the John Lennon song, Beautiful, Beautiful, Beautiful Boy. That's, I just found myself singing. I was caught up in this mystery, this miracle of having a new life in this world that was our own. And it felt right. Six years ago, I remember when we found out, our family, that our next door neighbor's son was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. This kid was Joel's age, sweet kid, really good at baseball, like destroyed our little league team as a pitcher one time. But he was diagnosed with cancer and over the next year we just saw it take its toll on him. I remember, 
And I went about five years ago, it was Halloween, and he was dressed up, but he could barely make it to a couple of, uh, of even houses. He was just completely done in. And, and soon thereafter, he died. And, and he left this gaping hole in the lives of his family and his community. A hole that, especially for the family, is never going to be filled. And the question, again, I ask, we have this complexity of experience. What is truer? We, we see these moments of, of beauty and life, or at least it seems like that, and yet we see these terrible things that we cannot make sense of. And the question is, what lies more at the heart of the reality in which we find ourselves? Or maybe to put it more personally, what is your story? Is your story ultimately a story with a happily ever after? Where yes, we go through hard things and things that are really painful, but in the end there is a sweetness of things being made right? Or is our story a tragedy? Where however beautiful things might seem to be in the moment, the, the beauty of the moment makes the end all the more painful because everything is lost. And there's nothing but tragedy at the end. What is more real? What has the last word about this? Is it goodness and life or is it nothingness and death? When the question is posed that way, it seems perhaps to even kind of give us an answer because, well, we know where life goes. I mean, we know where everything is going. You know, science tells us that presumably in some way distant time of the future, our sun will just burn out and then there will be nothing. But way sooner than that, we know each of us that each of us will die. There is no one on this earth who escapes death. And, and we know what that means, that no matter how beautiful certain moments, they are achingly beautiful because they know, we know they can't last. In fact, sometimes, maybe you even experience this, I know I have, sometimes where there's this moment where it feels full, there's a part of me that already feels a sadness because I know I can't hold on to it. And we see that, don't we? We see that if we are looking honestly at our future, loss is inevitable. We will, if we live long enough, lose close ones to us. If we live long enough, we will lose even our own health and abilities, and eventually we will lose our life. And it seems like that might have the last word. Certainly, if we look at the world around us, it does not seem that goodness and beauty lies at the heart of things. We think of, of just the war that we see. We think of, of things like global warming. We think of things like just the, the dysfunction in leadership. And it is not hard for us to decide that really, beyond all of the things that look good, at the heart is just chaos, and at the end is just death. And let me just say, if that is actually the way things are, if... If this world ultimately does not have life at the end of it, if there is not some greater meaning or purpose to things, if there is not some beneficent will, if there's not some goodness that lies beneath everything else, then really what that means about us for our life is that our lives are a matter of defending. We have to defend ourselves against a cruel and heartless world. What that means, if this is the case, 
is that life is really about us trying to figure out how to seize as much happiness as possible while we're alive. We have to figure out who we are, define that, figure out what kind of life will make us happy, and live that ruthlessly. That's the only thing that makes sense if there is ultimately nothing else beyond what we're talking about. So um, for about like a half second, about 10 years ago, there was this trendy acronym YOLO. Do you remember this? YOLO, you only live once. YOLO is the kind of thing that people would shout right before like downing their eighth shot of tequila. Or it's the thing they would do if they're on like this tall bridge and they have no idea how deep the river is, but they jump in anyway. YOLO, you only live once. It's the thing that maybe someone might whisper to themselves as they decide to cheat on their girlfriend. It is, if you will, the catchphrase of cynicism wrapped up in a kind of a party atmosphere. You only live once. There is nothing beyond this. There is no ultimate meaning. So just make of it what you will and try to have a party as long as you can. You know, I wonder, so we're in a time right now where there seems to be a lot of change and there's a lot of people trying to understand what's going on in our society and there are a lot of think pieces saying this is what's happening but I wonder if actually one of the ways of understanding what is taking place is that more and more we are just kind of living in to YOLO. Not, not in the, the let's do something stupid kind of way but in the hey there is nothing more. Hey there really isn't meaning beyond this so we just got to figure out how to do what we can with the life that we have. YOLO. I wonder if this explains why life just seems like it's getting faster and faster and faster. Have you noticed this? So, um, I was thinking about this. I was reading actually this in a book. If you think about email for a second, I re I'm old enough to remember, and many of us are, a time when email wasn't a thing. And then, of course, it was. And there's something really amazing about email. Like, it used to be if you had to schedule a meeting with eight people, you would have to call all eight people. Or maybe you would even send out a letter. And now, you type a few things, hit send, and boom! I mean, you can literally, with email, save an hour or two probably every week. And that, you add to that texting, and things can go quickly. What do we do with the hour that we've saved now that we have email? Do we now say, hey, I've got more time to just go for a walk? hang out with my family and relax. No, we use that time to do more stuff. Now we have the ability, we don't have to, if we want to understand something, we don't have to go to a library, we can just Google it and there's information right there, time saved, let's do more. Now we don't have to go to, you know, Blockbuster if we're wanting to find something fun to watch. We can just, in two seconds, download and start watching a video. It's on demand, time saved. Let's do more. We are doing more and more. We're going faster and faster. What are we doing and where we're going? We have no clue. But we just got to keep going. Why? Because you only live once. We need to make our lives feel full. We need to make our lives feel busy because busyness is a good substitute for meaningfulness. And it also keeps us from having to think about where things are going as long as we're busy. YOLO. I wonder if this is also a part of the reason why we're having such a hard time with relationships. You may have heard even before COVID, the Surgeon General was talking about how we're in this pandemic of loneliness where there's a sharp increase in people who claim to have no close personal friends or very few personal friends. That's not really hard to understand why when we sit back and think there are fewer, deeper roots being formed. Fewer marriages than ever are taking place. Fewer children than ever are being born. 
People are living less and less in the same community, in the same job. They are moving and moving, never putting down roots, never allowing deep attachments to form. Why? Because we don't want to get stuck. Life is too short for us if we have an unpleasant relationship, if we have an unsuccessful situation, if we have a moment of boredom. So let's keep moving because you only live once. It's a way that makes sense if there is nothing beyond right now. It's a way that makes sense. We, we, we have to keep moving. We have to distract ourselves because if we think too long, we will recognize that at the end is something that's not something we want to think about and we're just trying to figure out how to make as much out of the moment. But it is not a way that connects us to people. It is a way that ultimately is of alienation. We don't connect to others. We over time become detached to ourselves as we're moving at this busy pace and we certainly have no space to open ourselves up to anything that might be transcendent. But YOLO. Now if we want any kind of indicators about whether this is working well for us or not, I think we only need to think of our teenagers. Perhaps you've read recently how there's an increase, a striking increase in the number of teenagers who are talking about being seriously and perennially sad and even considering suicide. And people are asking, why? Well, who is busier with their lives being hyper-scheduled? Who is more distracted? He was more living that life of alienation. They are like the canary down the mine shaft showing us what's going on with the rest of us. Now, to be clear, I actually think there is a certain amount of rationality if, if this is all there is to living this way. In fact, if you might have noticed when Paul, the Apostle Paul, this is a letter that we just read in 1 Corinthians, part of a letter to the Corinthian church, and the Apostle Paul is talking to them because they are a little bit uncertain about the whole idea of resurrection. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel real. And, and so Paul says, now let's just think about that for a moment. And he does actually what we have just been doing. Let's, as a thought experiment, imagine the fact that there is no life beyond death. Let's just think about that for a moment. He says, then, then really you're going to need to pity me because it makes no sense for me to have given my life in service to others. Really, the whole Christian thing... It's a waste of time. In fact, he says, he goes on to say a little bit later in the passage, if Christ hasn't raised, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. YOLO. That's all there is. But before you come to that conclusion, Paul says, you need to understand something. I have seen the risen Christ. And it's not just me. He, he speaks in this passage, 500 other people have seen the risen Christ and so there is no doubt in my mind what has taken place. Verse 20 is his testimony, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And that means everything. We rehearsed what happened at the very beginning of our service as Luke gives us the account. We're told of these women who were some of Jesus' closest friends who were there at the cross who are now preparing to go to anoint the body of Jesus because that's all they can do. They, this is not going to be the first time that they've done something like this. Death was a very common thing in terms of just even the age in that society. They have grieved before. They have anointed a body with tears and perfume before. But this is different because of the violence, because of the suddenness, and because they had given their lives to Jesus. 
I mean, they had placed their trust in him. Their hope was in him. And so when he was on the cross and when he breathed his last breath and his heart stopped beating, it felt like they couldn't breathe either and their heart would never beat again. And they felt like there was this gaping, bloody wound to the world that would never heal. And now it's early Sunday morning and they do what they can. They are bringing spices to the tomb to, to honor the corpse of the one they loved. Except when they get there, in like a blink of an eye, their entire world is upended. The, the, the heavy stone that was meant to keep the dead in and the alive out, that's been rolled. And the door is open. And as they step in, completely confused, seeing no body, they meet these two angels. And these two angels say, why are you here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. Jesus has risen. Death didn't defeat Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. And they are still bewildered. And it seems to be that everyone is bewildered because later on in that evening, Jesus comes. There is a group of disciples having dinner. You've got the women who are there with them. And they're all probably talking about what happened. And then Jesus just joins the party. And some of them are pretty sure what they're seeing is a ghost because they saw Jesus die without a doubt. They know he is dead. There is no way this could be Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He says, give me some food. He eats. He says, touch me, feel the warmth of my skin. This is not just some ghost, some spiritual resurrection. Jesus, his body actually came back to life. He is fully alive. In fact, more alive than he has ever been. He's no longer capable of the same kind of tiredness or sickness or weakness. His body has been made whole for the first time ever. And, and what we need to understand about this is that this is not just a happy story about one person. Scripture tells us consistently that when Jesus came into this world, he came to be in solidarity with us. The Bible speaks of Jesus as, as our representative. All who place their faith in Jesus, he represents them. So when he went to the cross and he experienced this pain of death, he did that for us to deal with the death that we deserved. He was our representative. And what this also means is that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just his resurrection. It's about our resurrection as well. When Jesus was brought back to life, we were given a future of eternal life where we will be made whole. Another way of putting it is when Jesus, when God brought Jesus back from the dead, he was saying yes to his creation. Because what is Jesus' body but a part of this created world? God was declaring, yes, this is good. I am not done with this world. He was, in fact, promising by making Jesus whole that he was going to make this world whole. He was going to make our bodies whole. This is what Easter is declaring for us. And, and, and here's what this means. It means that death doesn't actually have the final word. Life does. It means that the sorrows that we experience, as deep and real as they are for those who are in Christ, these sorrows will be swallowed up by happiness on the last day. 
It means that even though we see again and again things in this world that are chaotic and evil and sometimes it seems like that's all there is, there is something even deeper going on. Beneath all of this, there continues to be God's loving, generous, smiling grace for those who are able to see it. And what this also means is that you and I do not need to live the cynical way of YOLO. If, if what we are saying actually happened, if, if some 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning, Jesus' heart just started beating again, and he just took in again a new breath, and he stood filled with joy, and he walked out of the tomb. If that has happened, there is no need for cynicism. There is no need for alienation. Instead, God has opened us a new way of living, and that new way is the way of wonder. So we have on our, um, Jennifer and I have like some of our videos are still on our phone from ones that we took many, many years ago. One of my favorite ones happened about 12 years ago where a one-year-old Joel, uh, that's our youngest son, is looking out the window and like he's almost vibrating with excitement and he's just like is transfixed and then he looks back and he says, squirrel! I mean, that's not what he said. He actually was like, woo-woo! But I mean, he was just thrilled and, and there was this sense that every fiber of his being was attuned to the mystery that he was beholding. And, and as he kind of connected with that, as he saw this beautiful, good, living creature, I should tell you, I don't like squirrels, but I'm trying to see it through his eyes, this beautiful, good, living creature, it just erupted out of his soul in praise. There was not like a hint of irony or cynicism. There was only connection there was a resonance where he saw something great outside of him and it moved him to action and words. That is what wonder is. Wonder is what I was talking about at the very beginning when I was talking about that sense of connection that I have through pets or, or that sense of, of, of mystery as holding a newborn. Wonder is the opposite of alienation. Wonder is this connection that we have that draws us outside of, of ourselves as we feel a sense of, of delight and even awe at, at our smallness and the bigness of what surrounds us. It's paradoxical because on one hand, wonder does recognize our smallness, but there's a sense that as we experience wonder, our lives feel bigger. Wonder can sometimes be what we experience when we feel this deep, curiosity as we're studying. Wonder can also be what we experience at a first kiss or sitting and watching a first sun or sitting and watching a beautiful sunset or having a fantastic day of work that we feel satisfaction in or as we wake up and taste the first sip of a perfect cup of coffee that is wonder. Wonder is at the heart of what it means to love and I would suggest wonder is at the heart of what it means to live. The way of YOLO has no space for wonder. As long as we're moving, as long as we're trying to keep going, we don't have any room to be able to, to behold and experience and recognize. In fact, it doesn't even make sense because if the way of YOLO is right, we're saying there really isn't anything to be wondering about. Nothing is ultimately wonderful. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, then it's totally different. 
In fact, Scripture repeatedly seems to be inviting us to this way of wonder, calling us to, to a different path. So, so even in Deuteronomy, there is this command in this ancient law of Moses where he tells God's people at the end of the year, after they've taken all of their stuff, they should take a huge percentage of it, 10%, and bring it in the presence of God and have a feast and celebrate and be full. That is a command to wonder. In the book of Proverbs, when it's trying to help us to understand what wisdom is, it says, here's how to be wise, to fear God. And when we understand what that means, it's, it's not fear as in I need to get away from him, but it's fear as in he is awesome. And yet, even as I feel trembling about it, I also feel drawn to him because I know that he loves me. That, that fear that it's talking about, that's wonder. And what else are we called to when God invites us to worship and declares the whole world is filled with my glory? What else are we called to but wonder? In fact, if we want any clearer evidence of this invitation for this kind of life, we only need to consider the fact that the by far most repeated word in terms of a command in all of Scripture is just the simple word to behold. Behold. Look. Slow down. Pay attention. It's a call to wonder. Now, for much of Scripture, even as we're invited to this way of beholding the grace of God in a way that leads us to love and joy, there remains this question, but wait, what about the bitey things? How can we have this kind of open posture, this vulnerability, if we're only going to get hurt? How can we celebrate life if at the end there is death? And then on the morning that we are celebrating today, we finally see the answer to the question that has been open for a while. When Jesus rose from the dead and God said yes to this creation and God said, this is good and it is moving towards perfection. And now there is an opportunity to wonder. I mean, what does Paul say? Paul says, behold, let me tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It is a call to wonder. What I'm trying to say in all of this this morning is that when we gather together to celebrate the resurrection as we do this morning, we are not just talking about something that gives us a comfort for the end when death is before us. We are talking about something that fundamentally shifts the life that we have right now. 
We're talking about a new way of living where we are invited to give of ourselves and yet discover even as we do, we are made more full. When we are invited to live a life of service to other in which we discover the fullness of freedom, where we are called to labor in love for a dying world with a promise that our labor will not be in vain. What God has done in rising Jesus from the dead is he has made a way open to us out of cynicism, out of alienation, into the way of wonder if only we will walk in it. How? How do we do this? How do we walk? How do we live in the way of wonder? That, that's the question that I want us to be considering over the next few weeks. We are beginning a series, and that is just the question that we want to consider together. What does it look like? We are redeemed. We are restored to this way of wonder. How do we live in it? But now, I would like to just close us in this time of prayer, asking God to help us in this very thing, to take hold of what he has for us. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, we, we can only barely begin to comprehend what you have done. Lord, that you would take us and rather than give up on us, that you would redeem us. And not only that, that when you call us, you would call us to a life of love and joy, that your world would be filled with the promise of your grace and generosity forever. Lord, we barely understand, but we pray that you would turn our hearts towards this reality. Lord, we pray that you would give us an attentiveness, an openness, a capacity to see what you have for us that we might trust more deeply in you and be filled with the joy that you have for us. Lord, would you please show us how to live in this wonder that you call us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.